0: Welcome and thank you for joining us for this podcast brought to you by the American Heart Association. This podcast is part of a series focused on sharing information with healthcare providers who are caring for patients during the COVID-19 pandemic.
1: This is B.K.M. Boskert, Professor of Medicine, Associate Director of Cardiovascular Research Institute, Director of Winter Center for Heart Failure Research from Baylor College of Medicine, and Chief of Medicine from Michael E DeBakey VA Medical Center in Houston, Texas. This is your power bite of what will be learned in this podcast. Heart failure patients are at a higher risk for adverse outcomes with COVID-19 infection. In addition to social distancing, hand hygiene and face cover, heart failure patients should show attention to maintain a healthy lifestyle, continue to take their cardiac medications including RAS inhibitors, remain active, and most importantly, remain in touch with their clinicians, and be aware that they can contact their clinicians virtually by telemedicine, including phone and video conferencing, or in person, or can seek urgent or emergency care. Heart failure symptoms can overlap with COVID-19. COVID-19 may present with fever, dry cough, fatigue, but symptoms can vary. If a heart failure patient has worsening symptoms, He or she should contact their clinician, seek attention, and not wait until the compensated critical state. Hello, welcome to this podcast on COVID-19 and heart failure. I'm joined today by Dr. Mark Drasner, Professor of Medicine, Clinical Chief of Cardiology at UT Southwestern Medical Center in Dallas, Texas, and Dr. Eldrin Lewis, Professor of Medicine and Division Chief of Cardiovascular Medicine at Stanford University in California. Welcome, Mark. Welcome, Eldrin. COVID-19 is affecting our world, especially our patients and our healthcare workers in so many different ways. Mark, what is the risk for catching COVID-19 and having adverse outcomes for our heart failure patients?
2: Yeah, Thank you, Vikram. That's a great question and something that we're not entirely sure about. We do know that many people who catch this virus in fact are asymptomatic but we also know that patients or people who have cardiovascular risk factors, things like diabetes and hypertension seem to be a particularly increased risk of having complications from the virus. So presumably patients with heart failure would also be in that category of having increased risk. Now the good news is that patients can do things to minimize that risk, things like social distancing, staying six feet apart from people, excellent hand hygiene, wearing coverings over your face when you're public and things like that.
1: Thank you, Mark. Eldrin, how can our heart failure patients differentiate their symptoms of COVID-19 versus heart failure, since both of them can present with shortness of breath?
0: You know, it's really difficult because with COVID-19, a lot of the symptoms, including shortness of breath, overlap with our uh, symptoms that our patients will get. So difficulty breathing, chest pain, fatigue, cough are often very common. uh, There are a couple of things that, that one can consider. The first is fever. The fact that fever is a very common sign in uh, COVID-19, if a patient has fever in addition to all of the other symptoms, that should be a warning sign. The other is uh, the rapidity of the change in their symptoms and especially the change in the quality of their symptoms. So if they're acclimated to having a little bit of fatigue and dyspnea, but it's out of proportion uh, and there's a rapid acceleration, then that should be a warning sign for patients. The third thing would be uh, mental status changes. You know, we we find that a lot of patients with COVID-19 have some confusion, and if there's any confusion that's seen in a family member, we should teach our patients to reach out for help. And then finally, uh, patients know when they're accumulating fluid. They have other signs. They have peripheral edema, they have weight gain if they're checking their weights on a daily basis. Um, and uh, sometimes GI symptoms. So if they don't have other signs and symptoms of heart failure, and uh, especially in light of um, fever or a potential at-risk contact, they should really move forward.
1: Thank you, Elgin. And edema swelling usually uh, probably leans more towards heart failure than COVID-19. That's correct. Uh, Mark, we're hearing a lot of uh, potential myocardial injury cases. Can you elaborate how the myocardial injury is diagnosed and how often it's seen?
2: Sure, I I think there's two scenarios that providers and patients should know about. The first scenario is a patient who has what I'll call kind of the typical COVID presentation that you heard about from Eldrin, fevers, cough, perhaps developing a pneumonia. And it turns out that when you look at patients who present to the hospital, as much as 20% or one in five have evidence of acute myocardial injury, that we diagnose by measuring something called high sensitivity troponin. And it turns out that that group of patients who have that troponin in their blood suggesting they have myocardial injury are at increased risk of having complications. The second scenario though, and this is not yet well described in terms of the frequency, are patients could present with just kind of a typical cardiac presentation, whether that be a myocardial infarction or something that seems like a myocardial infarction and turns out to be myocarditis or even new onset heart failure or decompensated heart failure. And what's a little concerning is that those patients do not have to have the more classical symptoms. They may, for example, not have any fever and just present with decompensated heart failure. And that's really where we don't yet know how common that presentation is at second scenario, where it looks kind of like a garden variety cardiac presentation, but in fact is related to COVID.
1: Thank you, Mark. Eldrin, what's our guidance for the heart failure patient who's stable at home? What should they do regarding their medications, diet, and activity?
0: Yes, I think the the most important take-home message is that they should do everything they can to remain stable. And part of that is really ensuring that they take all of their medicines. So I will really uh, highlight uh, the ACE inhibitors or inhibitors of the renin-angiotensin system. We know that... uh, that ACE2 is a part of ACE2 receptor is a part of the, uh, the integration of the virus into cells, and so because of this, there's a lot of concern about whether or not you using ACE inhibitors and angiotensin and receptor blockers can make a difference. And we just don't have the data. So the guidance from the American Heart Association and from other people would be to continue to take your meds so that you can remain stable. Um, if somewhere to become unstable, then that's a different different, uh, question. Uh, In terms of the other medicines, make sure they have adequate supply of their medicines, uh, preferably 90 days. Look to see if they can be delivered as opposed to them standing in line in their pharmacy um, because of exposure. And then in terms of diet, really making sure that they adhere to a low-sodium diet and a fluid-restricted diet. And this could be particularly challenging when the grocery stores are bare. So looking creatively to reach out to family members to ensure that you can get adequate uh, low sodium diet. And then the last thing in terms of activities, we want them to become active, but be active in the house, you know? Um, And so try to exercise a little bit if they can in their house. If they really have to go out, make sure that they're going out early in the morning where you don't have as many people in the park, and then wear a mask and kind of have social distancing to get the exercise and make sure that there's adequate social distancing.
1: Thank you, Aldrin. Mark, what should our patients do if they have worsening symptoms? How should they contact the clinicians? Yeah, I
2: think a a pivotal message for the patients who are listening is that you wanna make sure you maintain contact with your healthcare provider, whatever mechanism that is, if you're on the EHR and you can communicate that way or whether it's still calling them. It's very important during this time of uncertainty um, that you still maintain that contact with your healthcare provider. In terms of the telemedicine option, you know, most of, much of medicine is being moved to that due in the current COVID climate. Um, and it's really quite remarkable having done a number of these now, how much information from a provider perspective you can gain. You see the patient, you can have a, uh, their loved one with them and, and provide information. You can review medications by having patients hold up pill bottles. You can even do a limited examination. You can look at the neck and see if the neck veins are elevated. You can have the, uh, someone show them the legs and see if there's peripheral edema. So I've found that actually you can gain a lot of information over telemedicine. Now, if you're a patient and you notice that you have a change in your symptoms and you're not sure, it doesn't seem a dramatic change, then contact your health provider in, in your standard fashion. But if you have a significant change that your breathing has gotten much worse, and you're gasping or your defibrillator shocked you or you blacked out, anything that is a major situation, really you should call 911 and go to the hospital because nowadays, you, of course, even though there is COVID, it could be just a similar presentation related to your underlying heart problem, and you certainly don't want to avoid getting care for that. So if this is a significant change, please call 911. You can always go to the emergency room to get taken care of.
1: Thank you, Mark. Eldrin, by early data, there appears to be racial and ethnic disparities in COVID-19 outcomes. Can you elaborate on this for us?
0: Absolutely, it's really um, concerning. And and I have to say this is preliminary data and it hasn't been vetted in uh, in peer reviewed journals. But when you just look at some of the states that have proposed or presented uh, race data, if you look at African-Americans, for instance, In California, uh, they represent 9% of the population, but 17% of the deaths. But more strikingly, if you look at states like Illinois, where the Black population is 30%, the fatality rate from COVID-19 as of last week was 69%. It was 70% in Louisiana with 32% of the population. And if you look in New York, um, you see a large, uh, higher risk of uh, fatalities for both Hispanics, Latinx, as well as African-Americans. If you look at overall um, the uh, age adjusted rate of uh, fatal lab confirmed COVID 19, you know, certainly for Latinx patients, 22.8 versus 19.8 for African Americans, 10.2 for whites, and 8.4 uh, for, for Asians. So we know that there, there are probably a lot of factors, including access to care, uh, maybe a comorbid illnesses, all contributing, but we have to really ensure that we look at all populations as we try to mitigate some of the risks of uh, fatality.
1: Thank you, Eldrin. Mark, let's talk about the hospitalized heart failure patient. Uh, Can you comment on the management strategies for a heart failure patient requiring hospitalization with COVID-19? What are some of our treatment and management or research options?
2: Absolutely, and of course, the uh, therapeutic landscape is rapidly evolving, and as of at least today, we don't really have any proven uh, therapies Uh, that have been shown to be effective, so um, we need to all keep that in mind at this current point. Um, Of course, there's standard supportive care, and if if your patients progress um, to develop respiratory failure, um, as as most people have heard about, needing uh, being intubated and being placed on a ventilator can be uh, uh, sometimes necessary. I'm not getting into the specifics of the specific pharmacological therapies, just kind of broad categories. The anti-inflammatories and the antivirals seem to hold promise. But I do think a a message that is important at this date to get out is the critical role to get people to enroll in clinical trials. Unless we enroll patients into well-conducted, randomized clinical trials, we're never really going to figure out how to take care of this problem. So I think both for patients, willingness to participate, and for providers, enroll your patients in clinical trials is a huge message. Let me turn to our heart failure issue now, specifically for the providers who are listening, and and give you a, a few points there. Um, Dr. Boskert and I had the privilege of publishing a white paper that just came out today in circulation where there's a nice flow diagram that uh, addresses how to address what we're calling the acute COVID cardiovascular syndrome, kind of a flow diagram. I'll just highlight some comments from that, that figure. First of all, echocardiograms, standard echocardiography, of course, is sometimes difficult because of disinfecting the machine, additional PPE use for the sonographer. And so we do think the role of of point-of-care ultrasound may be very valuable. Um, Another point is that for patients who present with acute systolic heart failure, I think you want to have a pretty low threshold to consider the possibility of cardiogenic shock. We've seen a number of reports now of patients that present with what looks like fulminant myocarditis, and uh, I think the threshold to consider cardiogenic shock, whether it's sampling a central venous set, off of a pick line or some lactate, some measure to make sure that you're not underestimating the severity of the illness. Um, another issue that comes up is what we heard about not stopping uh, RAS blockers um, at this point, if you're on that in, uh, continuously beforehand. But for patients who present with new onset heart failure, the questions come up, when should you start guideline-directed medical therapy? And what we advocated in uh, that white paper at least is to make sure that the pulmonary status is stable because we've all heard of cases who develop rapid, rapid respiratory failure leading to the need for intubation, which oftentimes is associated with hypotension. And If you happen to start the beta blocker or the ACE inhibitor or the ARNI right before the patient got intubated, you may end up regretting that. And so we are advocating at least make sure that the pulmonary status is relatively stable, maybe towards the end of the hospitalization and that would be the point uh, of the time when you might consider um, in- initiating guideline-directed medical therapy. And then the last point we made, uh, the last one I'd like to highlight at least, is uh, the legacy effect of these patients to develop myocardial injury and have a reduced ejection fraction or even just troponin leak during the acute injury is entirely unclear at this point. We don't know if those patients are going to go on and develop chronic heart failure down the road. But I do think for the providers listening, you're probably gonna to want to reassess the left ventricular function, either at the, uh, if you haven't before, at the, towards the end of the hospitalization, if you have a point of care ultrasound, but certainly once the patient is no longer infectious, you probably want to get an echo and see what's going on and see if whether those patients should be initiated on guideline-directed medical therapy.
1: Thank you, Mark. Thank you, Eldrin. The key takeaways for our audience include Heart failure patients are at a higher risk for adverse outcomes with COVID-19. Therefore, they should show more precaution by social distancing, hand hygiene, and face cover. Stable heart failure patients should continue their standard made medications, including RAS inhibitors, remain active and follow a very healthy diet and low-sodium diet. And more importantly, they should remain in touch with their clinicians using new modalities of care, such as telemedicine or virtual visits. But... Don't be shy to utilize traditional models of care as well. COVID-19 symptoms can vary, but can present with fever, cough, and shortness of breath. If our patients are experiencing worsening breathing difficulty or clinical deterioration in the setting of possible COVID-19 infection, they should immediately seek medical attention. Similarly, even without COVID-19 infection, if heart failure symptoms worsen, heart failure patients should not refrain from contacting their clinicians and should seek attention to access care and be treated in a timely manner. Eldrin, any final thoughts on COVID-19 and heart failure?
0: Yes, Vikram, I think um, this has been great. The first thing that I would say is it's really important to think of our patients as people, you know, who don't just have heart failure, but often have comorbid illnesses. And we know that common comorbid illnesses include coronary artery disease, diabetes, and hypertension all of which have increased risk of uh, COVID-19 infections and the consequences of it. So we have to really encourage our patients to manage their diabetes, to realize that their their blood pressure could go up if they have an acute COVID-19 infection, so kind of increased surveillance of their blood pressure, but really importantly, uh, to manage their symptoms not related to heart failure, including chest pain. A very disturbing finding last week is the fact that the number of acute ST elevation MIs have decreased um, has decreased over the course of uh, the last month, but the number of sudden deaths and deaths in the community increased. And I think we have to really pay attention to that. The second thing I would highlight is that it's important to control emotions. We know that providers, physicians, nurses, um, the frontline uh, healthcare workers are all anxious about COVID-19 because of the manifestations our patients are as well. So things such as stress, depression, anxiety, social isolation, all can basically uh, wreak havoc on our patients. And when you have loss of uh, job, uh, food demands, uh, access to testing, as well as just knowledge of people who've contracted the disease and maybe have even died from uh, SARS-CoV-2, I think it's important that we encourage our patients to reach out for help if they need. it.
1: Thank you, Aldrin. Mark, any final thoughts from your side?
2: Yeah, thank you. First, it's always a pleasure to work with Dr. Boskert and Lewis, so it's been a real privilege for me as well. Um, I I wanna just kind of summarize four points. Uh, First, of course, is that prevention is absolutely key here. And we want everyone to practice excellent social distancing and hand hygiene. Avoiding this illness is by far the best approach. The second point is for those patients listening, if you have a significant change in your health status, If it seems urgent, you're having trouble breathing, seek emergent care. If it seems less urgent, please contact your provider. Don't just stay at home trying to tough it out because it could be a warning sign. Third, a message for the patient and the provider, we need everyone who is eligible to enroll in clinical trials. This is the only way we're gonna figure out how to take care of this illness in the best way. And then finally, for the providers listening to us, I think the new acute systolic heart failure in the setting of COVID, is an interesting condition that we all need to be aware of, have a low threshold to consider cardiogenic shock. And also remember that typical guideline-directed medical therapy, if the ejection fraction is still low, is likely going to be beneficial. We don't have hard data on that, but if we extrapolate, I think most of us would say you want to start guideline-directed medical therapy if the ejection fraction stays low, um, certainly once you identify that after the patient's infectious. So thank you for having me.
1: I would like to thank Drs. Drasner and Lewis for their informative contributions in our podcast and would urge our audience to return online to AHA Professional Heart Daily for additional podcasts planned for these series, which include COVID-19 in stroke, diabetics, pulmonary hypertension, and other concurrent cardiovascular diseases during these challenging times in healthcare delivery. Thank you.
0: The views expressed here do not necessarily reflect the official policies or positions of the American Heart Association and American Stroke Association. For more information please visit us at professional.heart.org.